0: As with every Buddhist class and Buddhist practice, we begin with refuge and motivation, bodhicitta. We take some time to get ourselves in the right headspace. refuge in Buddhism is um, refuge is a sort of fundamental practice in Buddhism and so it's worth coming back to over and over and over again. Um, we go for refuge to the three jewels or the triple gem as it's sometimes referred to. Um, the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. We go for refuge to the Buddha in the outer form of the Buddha as the the teacher, the the um the innovator, the discoverer, the um the philosopher, the scientist, um, Gautama Buddha, the historical person who made this discovery of awakening, of enlightenment. Uh, it was a hard won accomplishment, and um, he. Put a lot of effort and went to some extreme lengths in his experimentation. Um, he, in his life, he studied with the main philosophers and main philosophical schools that were available to him. And uh, in in his pursuit of wisdom, he found them. He found each of the main schools of philosophy lacking. And it was through his own innovation and and discovery that that this. Profound awakening nirvana um, or full enlightenment, bodhi um, that he came across it, so we go for refuge to him as sort of the um, the discoverer, the progenitor of this lineage of the of these teachings of this methodology, and also as a, a kind of beacon of hope um, you know one of the one of the meanings of Bodhi and, and of the English translation that we use, enlightenment, re, re, means to illuminate, to remove the darkness. And, and so I, I like to think of Buddha as sort of, uh, you know, a torchbearer, that he is lighting the path for us. And also sort of the light at the end of the tunnel is another kind of image that I find evocative for spiritual practice. And so Buddha is uh, is kind of the light at the end of the tunnel, the the beacon, the the pole star that we can orient our navigation around. So we can go for refuge to Buddha in that sense that it's that it's a reliable marker, that it's a trust that it's a trustworthy, it's a trustworthy you know signpost to orient our our own practice, our own spiritual life around. And then we we also go for refuge to the inner form, the inner meaning of the Buddha, um, which is um, this kind of cosmic or metaphysical Buddha. This is what we're. This is more of the Prajna Paramita approach. That that Buddha is not just that Buddha not a historical person per se, but that Buddha is this this potential. Of consciousness, like the the very fact that we are possessors of consciousness, that we have experiences, means that we have this innate capacity to have a fundamentally different kind of consciousness in which we are not um, subjected to suffering. We're not subjected to ignorance and misunderstanding, where we can stop making the errors of of creating the causes of misery in our own lives. And that we can live in this, in this profoundly peaceful, awakened mode. Um, and it's, I think from a dualistic state, it's nearly impossible to imagine what consciousness would be like to, to function in a, in a state of non-duality consistently and sustainably. But um, nevertheless, we take that as this as this marker. We go for a refuge to Buddha in the sense that we we have the capacity to have a transformed kind of consciousness. Um, in the words of the in the language of the Heart Sutra, that we we have a consciousness that can be dwelling in emptiness, um, able to see directly phenomena. In, without the self-nature that, that they seem to have that we're imposing upon them. We go for refuge to the Dharma. And the, the, the outer form of the Dharma are the teachings, the sutras, the texts, the oral traditions, the lineages. Um, that we go for refuge to them in the sense that the, that people have preserved the, the methodology, that Buddha's discovery wasn't lost To history, which in in the um, sutras, the early sutras, there was a moment where it looked like the Dharma, that Buddha's discovery, was going to be lost because he felt that it was too profound that people wouldn't be able to understand his discovery, and he almost decided to not teach it, to simply, you know, live in this transformed state but not make an effort to pass it along. But um, he changed his mind. He was persuaded to change his mind. And so the lineage of the Dharma initiate, was initiated and started. Um, the wheel of the Dharma was set in motion, as is as an, as an evocative phrase from, from the sutras. And Buddha's first teaching is called um, setting the wheel of Dharma in motion. And so that wheel continues to to roll down through history to us today, and we can take refuge in that, knowing that we, we have this preserved corpus of of um, techniques and experiments that we can try. Um, also, that the the that there's something we can do about our state. We're not trapped in samsara. We're not trapped in suffering that there are techniques that we can apply. And wherever we are, there's some, wherever we are is a place that we can begin. And the inner form of the Dharma is the, the truth that the teachings and the techniques and the experiments and the meditations are guiding us towards, which is this transformed state of consciousness. The ability, the, you know, it, it is the lack of self-nature to phenomena, the lack of self-nature of our own self and that we can experience that we can revel in that we can achieve it or or discover it for ourselves so when we go for refuge to the dharma it's that there's a truth to work towards that there that, that there's a capital T truth that can be discovered that we each can discover and then we go for refuge to the sangha and the outer form of the sangha is the it, sangha means community and the, the outer form of the Sangha is um, our friends and our colleagues, our spiritual friends, um, our, our spiritual teachers, people who are helping us along the path. Um, the Sangha also goes through history, all of um, the people who have preserved the oral t- traditions, the people who have replicated this discovery of the Buddhas, and... Um, develop their own approaches their own commentaries on buddha's teaching their own philosophical texts their own branches of buddhist philosophy that provide new innovations and new ways to approach the buddhist um, experiment the buddhist exercise of working towards enlightenment ourselves and the the um the inner form of the, of the Sangha is that, um, when we go for refuge, is that Buddha is not the only one to have achieved this type of realization. That there's not just one Buddha. Siddhartha Gautama was an outlier somehow, and he did this radical crazy thing, and nobody else has been able to do it since. On the contrary, generation after generation of people have put these teachings into practice and, and made progress and has produced many awakened Awaken people, and so we we can go for refuge to the sangha in the sense that um, the results are replicable, and we have we have evidence of that from the the lineages of spiritual teachers and the hagiographies that we can read about there about many different people's awakening and and how all of the different ways that they approached it. <clears throat> The next step is to uh, set our motivation, which in th- this is a, a characteristic of Mahayana Buddhism, which is to recall that we're not, that it's, it's insufficient to simply end suffering. That um, even though Buddha in his life, most of his, most of his teachings or a large corpus of his teachings were oriented towards um, identifying and uprooting suffering and that, that ending suffering is itself a, a worthwhile goal. But in Mahayana Buddhism, we take it a step further and say that we actually have to work towards the ending of suffering for others as well, that um, ending our own suffering is necessary but not complete. It's, it's, um, Mahayana Buddhism would make a distinction between nirvana and anuttara samyaksambodhi, unsurpassed complete enlightenment. Um, and so the, the Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi is the result of working towards ending suffering for others as well as our, our, ourselves that if we, if we were able to reach nirvana that we would look out upon a world and see other beings suffering, suffering and we would realize that nirvana wasn't sufficient and that there was still more, more work to do and uh in Mahayana Buddhism, we set that as our goal from the outset that we're working towards the liberation from suffering of all of all beings, and because we set that as our motivation from the out uh, from the outset um it makes our practice more powerful and faster, more potent so that's how um that's how Mahayana Buddhism would set the goal and set the, the practice. And so we set our motivation from the beginning. And that's called Bodhicitta. And um, uh, a being who has Bodhicitta is called a Bodhisattva. And we're familiar with that because here in the Heart Sutra, our main character, one of our main characters, is um, Avalokiteshvara, And Avalokiteshvara is a great Bodhisattva. Um, one of Buddha's chief disciples. And um, Avalokadishvara is uh, a bodhisattva whose specialty or his main practice, his or her main practice was compassion. And at the, so at the beginning of the, the Heart Sutra, um, which is uh, just to remind you, is um, called the Heart of the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra. And so perfection of wisdom is this transcendent wisdom that Buddha has achieved. And the heart of it is to indicate that we are looking at only the most condensed, pithy instruction on how to realize the perfection of wisdom. And um, so... Avalokiteshvara is someone who has already realized the perfection of wisdom and in fact is dwelling in the perfection of wisdom. The text describes it as practicing the practice of the perfection of wisdom. So the the text emphasizes that this is a a process and that Avalokiteshvara is in this process and from within this meditative stillness, this transcendent wisdom, Avalokiteshvara looks out upon the world. And um, it's an interesting characteristic is that Avalokiteshvara, according to the Heart Sutra, looks out upon the world and doesn't see people in suffering. What Avalokiteshvara sees from the perspective of Prajnaparamita is heaps of functions, categories of perception, categories of feeling and thought and form that are themselves empty of self-nature. So even when we're talking about compassion, even when we're talking about Avalokiteshvara whose name means euphemistically, one who hears the cries of the world, um, even, even this intense compassion of hearing the cries of the world from within Prajnaparamita, within the perfection of wisdom, within this transcendent, within this transcendent, state of, of stillness and non-duality that beings look like sort of amalgams of functions that are all sort of enmeshed and interacting and overlapping. So when at the beginning of the text, when it says that Avalokiteshvara looks out upon the world, looks down upon the world, so to say, and and sees all of these these heaps, these skandhas, these collections Of functions and sees that these functions are all empty we're we're being told right at the outset that that things are not as they appear to us and from the perspective of a bodhisattva um, practicing the practice of the perfection of wisdom they don't even see beings per se they don't see people they see a web of interrelationships that, that, and there's no self-nature to be found in any of it. And Avalokiteshvara then explains this to our other main character, Shariputra. Um, Shariputra is a, an advanced spiritual practitioner, another one of Buddha's chief disciples. And Shariputra asks, asks Avalokiteshvara, how does one practice the perfection of wisdom? And the rest of this text is how Avalokiteshvara answers that. And the first thing that, he, that Avalokiteshvara says to Shariputra is that, is that all of these things, all of the skandhas, all of these functions are empty of self-nature. So he describes the, the, the heaps, the skandhas, um, and he says that the, the skandhas uh, are empty, are emptiness. And emptiness is the skandhas. The the skandhas are not other than emptiness, and emptiness is not other than the skandhas. Wherever we see the skandhas, that is emptiness. And whatever is emptiness, that is the skandhas. All phenomena have the characteristic mark of emptiness. All phenomena are not produced, are not destroyed, are not impure, and are not pure. They are not deficient, and they are not complete. <clears throat> and he says that this is all of the aspects of our body, all the all, all aspects of the physical world, all aspects of our mind. He says this is all sense objects, objects of touch, objects of taste, smell, sounds, things visible objects, our mind itself, our sense organs, our capacity for sensing also has this characteristic mark of emptiness. And he he then goes on to to describe um, Buddhist causation. And this is what we got started with. This is what we got into at the end of class last week, the 12 links of dependent origination. Um, The the 12 links are how early Buddhism describes the process of how the world comes into being. And this is... um, where that you can find the image on the link that I gave earlier. Did I give you the link? Okay. Um, um, this has the the image that I gave you has it in English um, and we're working and so we, we'll stick with the English. We have the Sanskrit as well, but we went into that in more detail in the last class. So we can just stick with the. The um, the English translation for for now. So the underlying characteristic for all of causation is ignorance. Ignorance is what produces volitions, and um, in this uh, in this image it says karmic formations. So this means like the latent impressions that are driving our consciousness forward. Um, volition in in Sanskrit, the Sanskrit word "samskara," um, it doesn't. We ha, in, in English when we hear volition, it has this kind of meaning of will, like what we're will. We, when we have volition, it's because I set my sights on something and I go for it. Um, but volition in Sanskrit, as I mean in in Buddhism as a technical term, volition is this subtle precognitive impulse to exist. So volition would then also be like in in um Yogacara buddhism they talk about the storehouse of karma they describe karma in, as as like this backlog of all of the karmic seeds that have been planted over countless lifetimes from time with no beginning we've been in this cycle creating this massive backlog of karma and that massive backlog of karma is what's is what's driving the whole process forward um, so seeds are constantly ripening karmic seeds are constantly ripening and the and the the volition is the latent potential for all of the seeds to for for karmic seeds to be ripening so volition is sort of this like urge to exist this intensity that that pushes us to be so. Volition, karmic formations is the the pre, the um, predisposition or the tendency or the underlying cause that drives consciousness itself. So consciousness is, is here the the capacity to experience the capacity to think. There's no thoughts yet we're just talking about the principle the, the principle of consciousness that that samskara volition drives consciousness consciousness drives the next one name and form that's the the tendency to reify things the tendency to thingify things this is what what the heart sutra is calling the svabhava the the self nature that things are empty of that's wanting to thingify wanting to identify objects Including our own body and our own mind, including to create you know, to identify our own self as objects. This is the, the this is even before names and forms are even necessarily um, being applied to things, this is just the tendency to think the tendency to reify, the tendency to thingify. And that tendency is what drives the the fifth link, which is the six sense spheres. Um or six senses, as it's said on the, on the image. Um, now the six senses includes the objects of sense as well as the senses. So the six is not just the perceptual quality, but it's also the objects that we're perceiving. The Heart Sutra goes through and lists all of these, right? It talks about the sense organs, it talks about the sense objects, and it talks about the sense consciousnesses. According to this model, There are no sense objects independent of sense consciousnesses. There are no things that we're perceiving until and unless we're perceiving the things. And similarly, there's no no perception unless there's a perception of something. And then the third ingredient is the consciousness that's capable of perceiving things. So that process, the senses, the process of sensing is being driven by the tendency to reify things. So the the urge to exist leads to consciousness. Consciousness leads to uh, the need to identify objects, subjects and objects. The tendency, the need to identify subjects and objects is what produces the sense objects and the senses. So sense of, the, per, the process of perception and all of the objects of perception are coming from the urgency to reify according to the 12 links of dependent origination or the 12 links of interdependence. And that's what produces all of these subsequent things that we identify contact, which is the moment that we engage an object, the moment that the object actually comes to us. Or we go to the object is what it feels like to us, right? We think that we're like wandering around in the world, bumping into objects. But according to this model, we're kind of the center point and all the objects are are emerging in conjunction with our sense perceptions and our sense consciousnesses in this continual process of emergence that's driven by the tendency to reify, to need to see a self as self and other and other as other. So that's what is this driving the ongoing contact. Contact produces feeling, which is the immediate response to the the contact. Feeling is either I'm attracted to this thing or I'm repulsed by this thing. I want to get closer to it, I want more of it, or this is dangerous or painful and I want to get away from it. Or neutral, right? We experience neutral feelings about lots of things. Um, things that we more or less are just not registering right like the color of the wall behind me is neutral like it doesn't really invoke anything whatsoever whereas if the color of the wall was vermilion or teal then you might have a a different reaction to a, a vibrant a vibrant color so those are all feeling. When you walk into a room that's painted a bright color and you're just like, oh, either you like, like it and you want to go in or, oh, you don't want to go in. Just that, that momentary impulse, that, that reaction is feeling. Feeling is what drives craving. Craving is either you a- a- are, are moving towards the thing or moving away from the thing. So first there's the impulse. You see how this is like breaking down this process into these micro moments, these sub these like subsections of experience so feeling is the immediate sense the the contact with something and then the immediate attraction or repulsion or neutrality craving is when we actually feel the urgency to move towards it or away from it and then grasping or clinging is when we are attached to the thing as being able to give us the satisfaction that we want or if we get rid of it then we're free of the suffering that it's causing so we're all we're many steps ahead now of just identifying something as an object that's separate from us and we have moved through all of these micro moments and this is all happening i mean according to like the abhidharma model this is happening dozens of times every instant every instant This is happening dozens and dozens of times in every finger snap. So grasping is the point at which we say, ah, yes, if I actually acquire the thing, then it will be the thing that I'm looking for. Or if I get away from this thing, then I will be free of the suffering that it's causing me. Grasping is then what drives the need to exist. So you can see how this is a cycle. So becoming then is what drives birth which if we, there's a few different ways of taking this right like if you look at the at the image it has past present and future in the middle and it has cause and effect and cause and effect so these are examples of how this can drive causation past present and future is what's what is the urgency that's pushing us into the present moment, how we're responding to the present moment, and then birth, old age, and death are what is driving us into the next loop in the cycle. We can look at this as an example of what happens over a lifetime. Some some interpretations of, of uh, the 12 links of dependent origination, is is describing what leads up to birth meaning literally being born as a human being and then old age and death is the whole rest of your life there's this impulse to exist which which is driven by the first 10 links there's the actual existence and then decay and then from the moment that we're born we're basically getting older and and heading towards death but i prefer to think about this as this whole process is happening continually We're constantly being driven by ignorance. We're constantly being driven by karmic formations. That's what's driving our ongoing experience of consciousness, seeing subjects and objects, um, experiencing the sensory world that we're in, constantly coming into contact with objects, having feelings about our contact with the objects. This is all happening constantly. So the, the Heart Sutra... Also then says that, um, it says there is no ignorance or destruction of ignorance, up to and including no old age and death and destruction of, no, of old age and death. Now that second part is interesting because one of the things that um, Buddhism teaches us about the 12 links of, of dependent origination is that we can interrupt this process and that's one of the ways that we can stop the flow of karma the flow of causation that we're being subjected to and move towards nirvana if we can stop the if if we stop the ignorance then we stop the karmic formations we stop the karmic formations we stop the consciousness etc and so in theory interrupting this process of the 12 links of dependent origination will stop the entire flow of rebirth. So one of the things that the Heart Sutra is doing here is it's telling us that the 12 links don't exist, but it's also telling us that interrupting the 12 links doesn't exist. Um, this is uh, this is provocative because it's one of the ways that the Heart Sutra kind of attacks other Buddhist ideas and um, challenges the things that we are being that we have been led to believe i'm talking about us philosophically that we've been led to believe that these are the processes through which we can achieve nirvana and the heart sutra is telling us that these are um that these are false ideas so moving on to the next verse or the next line rather the the heart sutra then says Naduka um, samudaya niroda margaha. If you're following the text, that's the line that we're on. Um, now it's going even it's going even deeper into um, Buddhist philosophy. Because these four are the very first teaching that Buddha gave. This is the four Arya truths, or the four noble truths. Um, the The four noble truths are the the basis and the foundation of all other Buddhist teachings. And some, and even though there's a proliferation of different Buddhist philosophies, um, one of the markers for Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist teaching, is does it relate to the Four Noble Truths or does it not relate to the Four Noble Truths? And if it relates to the Four Noble Truths, then that's a marker, a characteristic that it is a Buddhist teaching. Um, the, the Four Noble Truths are... Well, um, first of all, they're called the four Arya truths. The Sanskrit word is Arya. And the the word Arya is usually translated as noble or noble one, as in nobility. And that carries this kind of connotation of of um, sort of aristocracy or you know, it has this idea of kind of an exalted kind of person. But an aria is referring to something specific in Buddhism. As with a lot of these things, we we we're translating it into English and we're working with this English translation, but we're talking about technical terms that have um quite a bit of embodied meaning in them within Buddhism. And so the 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 truths of the the arias, the, the arias are um awakened beings. So when it's the four noble truths, it's really more like the the, the four realizations of a Buddha. Um, this is one of the ways that we could encapsulate Buddha's big discovery, that these four things um, tell us everything we need to know about Buddha's discovery. And as a result, there they are something that we need to work towards to um, work towards a buddha's enlightenment Um, but it's also a marker of success in practice is the the depth to which these four truths seem clear and self-evident these sort of transitions called realizations where we go from having an idea about something to having a a visceral experience of it as true Um, also, the word, the the word truth, I think of them, I think it f- like maybe fact is a better word because they're, these are not subjective truths. According to Buddhism, these are not, um, <clears throat> they're not, um, I don't know, how would you put it? They're not really, they're not they're not true versus like true and false. They're true in the sense that they are like real. They're, they're, they're like natural laws. So when I think of, I mean, like, you know, the the reason I'm struggling with words right now is because we have a lot of problems with truth and facts in our modern society. If you've noticed where we have things like alternative facts and, um, and, and, where truth is something that is subjective. And some people think that, you know, science is producing valid truths about our world. And other people think that science is not producing valid truths about our world. And then we don't even agree on what we mean when we say truth. But I think also that there's another there's another definition of the word true, which is like... Um, like the tr- true in the sense that a compass can be true it's true in the sense that it's 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 pointing in the right direction it's um or or i think they use this in in building right where um when you're trying to get like timbers aligned properly then the the um when they're when they're aligned properly they're true they're true And I think of this, like, four noble truths, four Aria truths, as having that definition of truth as well. Like, we have a compass, and if the compass is working properly, we can trust the compass. It's true in that sense. And so, it's not necessarily, like, another way of looking at at this is that they're not true in the sense that they're facts, but they're true in the sense that they're accurate. They're true in the sense that they are, that we can trust them and that we can follow them. So these four truths, um, the first is the truth of suffering, the truth of Dukkha. So the four truths in Sanskrit are Dukkha, Samudaya, Nirodha, and Margaha. Um, Dukkha, as um, if you've been around Buddhist or yoga texts much, you will be familiar with this word Dukkha. And Dukkha means suffering, generally. Um, I've also seen it translated as stress. Which um, I think is an interesting kind of alternate translation. Um, When we think of dukkha as suffering, it sounds like like it could be something really gruesome, you know. But um, if we think of suffering as stress, it's like we're never at ease. We're never things are not always just going smoothly. That. that we're always under pressure, that there are things outside of our control that impinge upon us that um, prevent us from being peaceful and at ease and still. Um, The word dukkha um, really um, in Sanskrit also is a the word that's used to describe um, when a wheel on a cart doesn't fit properly on its axle and so I think of it as kind of an automatopoeia, right? Duca sounds like if you're riding in a car where one of the wheels is kind of like off-kilter or something like that. Duka 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 duca. You're like bumping down the road as you go. Um, so I think of duca as also like it's a rough ride. You know, we're like on a dirt road with a broken with like a damaged wheel and like we're making progress but it's not a comfortable ride. Um, but usually, when we talk about in Buddhism, what they'll use the word suffering, and so you know, this is one of the things that Buddhism is kind of one of the things that Buddhism is kind of famous for is saying life is suffering. You know, and that's the first of the four noble truths. But there's a lot more to it than that. It's that um, we're we're sort of habitu- our, our suffering is habitual. It's not that we're being it's not that we're suffering because it's being like imposed upon us by some external force. It's that we are um we have a habit of suffering. We have a habit of having a rough ride. And it doesn't feel that way, but that's why Buddhism is trying to draw our attention. That's what it's trying to point to. It's saying you know, one of the one of the metaphors for um, for suffering that Buddha used in one of the old scriptures is um, the two dart the two dart problem, and Buddha says that like <clears throat> you know your karma ripens and bad stuff happens to you, and it's like getting shot with an arrow, and getting shot with an arrow sucks. You're already, you're in pain. It's it's really bad. But he says getting upset about it is like stabbing ourselves with a second arrow. And we don't have control over the first arrow, but we do have control over the second arrow. And so this is one of the ways that Buddhism is trying to draw our attention to suffering. And that's the second of the the four Arya truths, samudaya. Um, Samudaya means um, producing or cause. And, it, and it's implying suffering, that, that suffering isn't something that's outside of our control. Um, it seems like it is because it seems like it has a Svabhava, and that's what Heart Sutra is really getting at. Um, the, the, that suffering is caused <clears throat> means that it's, um, it's not random, it's not happening because of things outside of our control. There's a cause. And in um, and the cause is um, craving. So really, you know, you could say that the second suffering, the second truth, is that suffering is caused. But you could even you could get to a, a, even put a finer point on it by saying suffering is caused by our craving, wanting things to be a certain way, wanting things to be different than they are. That's the second dart and the second arrow. And we keep sticking ourselves with the arrow, saying, I don't want it to be like this, and then we poke ourselves with the arrow, making it even worse. So this is the second of the four noble truths, is that that suffering suffering has a cause, and this is actually hopeful. This is good news because it means the the third the third noble truth is that there's an alternative. Niroda. Um, niroda means it can be stopped. There's a cessation. There's um, there's a way to end suffering. And now we've got really good news because uh, you know here's where where it's like you know sign me up because okay there's suffering that's a bummer suffering is caused well okay thanks there's a, there's an alternative to suffering suffering can be end, niroda cessation. The end of suffering is possible. Okay, now I'm interested. Um, and so the, the third of the, the, the Noble Truths is, is that of nirvana, right? The cessation of suffering is nirvana. This experience of, of no more suffering. And then the fourth of the Arya Truths is margaha, which means path or road. And that me, and what that means is that there is a, there's a technique. There's stuff you can do. There's a path to the end of suffering. So the first noble truth, the first Arya truth is that there's suffering. There's this pervasive suffering, stress, discomfort, dis-ease, rough road, flat tire kind of situation that we're in. That it's, there's a cause for the suffering. The, which is that we want things to be different than they are that the that the suffering can be ended that there's a way to exist in peace and and a basic kind of joy and that there's a path there's a technique that we can put into practice so this is um you know one of the things about this is why we're doing this decoding the heart sutra class is that the heart sutra is based on this assumption that you're well versed in all of these ideas because it just mentions all of these things in passing with this assumption that you're well versed in all of these philosophical ideas and and these other these Buddhist principles so that we can go after them with shunyata with emptiness so it's worth mentioning it's worth breaking in breaking down what these things that it's talking about are so the, the the fourth um, of the four Arya truths itself, we're not going to go into a lot of detail with these, but um, you've probably heard of the Eightfold Path, also called the Noble Eightfold Path. It's that same word, the Arya, the, the, the path of the Noble Ones, the path of the Aryas, the path of the Awakened Ones. <clears throat> so the fourth of the four Noble Truths, the path is the Eightfold Path, which is um, one of the early articulations of everything that you would need to know to practice Buddhist methodology, Buddhist philosophy. So um, just for the sake of thoroughness, um, I would like to read you the verse in which the Four Noble Truths are introduced. Um, I find this interesting because you know, especially when we're in these kind of later philosophical schools of Buddhism, like Madhyamaka and the Tibetan schools and Yogacara and things like this, um, it's built on these earlier ideas and sort of takes them for granted. But if we're in these kind of Mahayana and Vajrayana schools, we don't necessarily go back and read the original sutras in, and to look at the origin of these ideas, look at the, the, um, what, the, what the earliest texts actually say. So um, I thought it would be fun as an exercise, since we've got the Four Noble Truths in the Heart Sutra, the Prajnaparamita text, I thought it would be interesting to look at the verse where the Four Arya Truths are are initially introduced. This is from a text, this is from the Pali Canon. So um, the earliest Buddhist texts only exist in Pali, which is a Prakrit dialect, so Sanskrit is. Uh, Sanskrit is a Prakrit language. It's a very formalized Prakrit language. But the earliest Buddhist texts um, seem to only exist in Pali, which is a more kind of colloquial um, version of uh, a a more colloquial Prakrit dialect. So in Pali, the name of the text is the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta. In Sanskrit... That's Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutra. Um, and in English, that means setting the wheel of Dharma in motion. So we have um, Pravartana, which means to set in motion, Chakra, which means wheel. It's the same word if you heard the yoga idea of chakras like energy centers, it's the same word. And, and it literally means wheel in Sanskrit. And Dharma, which is one we've talked about a lot which is, the in this case, in this context, dharma means Buddha's teachings. So we're setting the wheel of the dharma in motion. And that's the name of the text. Okay, I'm going to read this verse. Now this, mendicants, is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are suffering. Association with the unbeloved is suffering. Separation from the loved is suffering. Not getting what is wanted is suffering. And this, mendicants, is the noble truth of the origination of suffering. Second, the craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here and now there, that is craving for sensual pleasure, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming, and this monks is the third or mendicants. This mendicants is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. And this mendicants is the noble truth of the way of the practice leading to the cessation of suffering, precisely this noble eightfold, eightfold path right view, right resolve. Right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So that one verse has a lot tells us a lot about what we need to know about Buddhism. Um, he has a in that one verse. He describes what he means by suffering. He describes what causes suffering. He describes the um, what the alternative is: this relinquishment of craving. And then he also at least introduces this eightfold path: right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And I'm not going to go into the, all of the eightfold path, but it's um, um, but it's good to uh, at least be familiar with those ideas because they're quite common in Theravada Buddhism, but we don't really spend as much time with them in Mahayana Buddhism, and. Um, you know, I spent a lot of years studying Mahayana Buddhism and I'd heard about the Eightfold Path, but I hadn't really gotten into it. And then I started hanging out with um, other schools of Buddhism and and they said, oh, yeah, really, the Eightfold, the Eightfold Path is the whole is the whole picture. Um, in Tibetan Buddhism, we have the Lam Rim and that's sort of our framework that we orient around the steps of the path um, developed by largely by um, Jetson Kappa. But even that is sort of a reframing of the Noble Eightfold Path. So the, the Eightfold Path has everything you would need to practice Buddhism effectively. And that's, you know, that's part of what's interesting about Buddhism is there's all of these different philosophical systems, all of these different approaches, different ways of approaching the problem and the solution. But we're in a Prajnaparamita class and so the Prajnaparamita isn't just telling us about the, noble, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. On the contrary, the Prajnaparamita texts are saying there is no suffering. There is no cause of suffering. There is no cessation of suffering. And there is no path to the cessation of suffering. So the Prajnaparamita, again, is drawing us back to this idea to not get attached to the buddhist teachings that the 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 goal the process the end result of the buddhist teachings is to not hold on to these concepts to not get attached to the very things that are being presented to us as the the path to freedom that we can that when we start to become oriented towards buddhism We start to shift our our orientation, we start to change our priorities, we start to have new markers for what it means to be successful in our lives. Um, We start orienting towards noticing, like in the Four Noble Truths, we're noticing that suffering is happening, instead of just being buffered about by suffering, buffered about by life experiences, we start to notice the markers, we start to notice those things. And by paying attention to that, we can make better choices. Right. That's the the second of the noble truths. We can start looking at how is the suffering caused. How can I crave less? How can I have less aversion? You know. How can I react less strongly to the things that I find unpleasant or or discomforting? Um, How can I develop? patience so that i don't lose my temper when i when i'm being provoked and we start noticing these things we start to set set new priorities and that's based on knowing that it's possible to reduce and ultimately eliminate suffering according to buddhism and we have these techniques that we can put into practice the eightfold path but the heart sutra is reminding us that all of those things are that getting attached to the, to those things is recreating the causes of suffering just like getting attached to, you know, having nice things and getting new stuff and, shop, you know, shopping on Etsy, which is my habit lately. Um, so, like, I, you know, I can see how shopping on Etsy is, like, making me obsessed, but I can just as easily get obsessed with Buddhist philosophy and say, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm, like... Shopping on Etsy is, um, you know, craving, and I know that craving is the cause of suffering, but I can just as easily get attached to Buddhist philosophy as these ways of getting out of suffering, and then getting attached to that is doing the exact same thing, except with philosophy instead of with, you know, cool stuff on Etsy. so that's a big part of what the Heart Sutra is, is helping us do. Get unattached to these things. Um, even the things that help us will harm us if we get attached to them. Uh, there's, a, there's a metaphor um, that's used quite a lot, especially in, in um, Chinese Buddhism of the, of the raft. Um, one of the, this is, this is kind of cool because the word paramita, right, which, which means perfection... As in perfection of wisdom, prajna paramita. The word paramita actually means crossing to the other shore, and so in a, in Sanskrit it literally means like crossing a river, fording a river, and arriving at the other side. So when we're using the word perfection, it's a euphemistic usage even within Sanskrit, where getting to the other shore, getting to the other side, means euphemistically perfection to accomplish something to to um, finish it off to finish the project so the perfection of wisdom is like cro- is like completing the project of wisdom cro- and, it, and literally meaning to like f- get across a river so um, you th- there's sort of a, a way of unpacking this idea is that to get across the river you need to build a raft and so that's what we're doing with Buddhist philosophy we're we're getting the timbers and we're lashing them together with the Eightfold Path, the Four, the four Noble Troops and the Eightfold Path and all of these philosophical ideas, you know, having these ways of thinking about how to change our orientation so that we can end suffering. We build our raft and we ford across the river. We put these things into practice. We have to navigate the rough waters. And then eventually we'll achieve Prajnaparamita. We'll get to the other shore. But then one of our mistakes is then to take the raft with us, like it can still help us once we're on the other on the other side. And now we've gone to the other shore, or we think we've gone to the other shore, but we're dragging this raft with us that we don't need anymore. So that's one of the that's a metaphor, that's a an image, an evocative image for Prajnaparamita. We need the raft, but we only need the... We we need the raft. We need Buddhist philosophy. We need Buddhist practice. But it is itself provisional. We don't need Buddhist philosophy because it's valuable in and of itself. It's valuable because it helps us get across. It helps us achieve this goal. It helps us have these realizations. And once we have the realizations, the philosophy isn't... it, It becomes a dead weight that we're dragging around. So... You know, I'm not I'm not there yet. I depend on the raft. I depend on the, the scaffolding to help me navigate life. But Heart Sutra is helping remind us, it's helping point to this situation that we could find ourselves in, which is getting attached to the raft, getting attached to the philosophy, becoming really good scholars of philosophy without actually using the philosophy to end suffering. That's another risk for those of us who are kind of nerds, right? Kind of, kind of uh, philosophy geeks. We like get really excited about the philosophy and we get really proud of ourselves for how well we can recount the, all of the lists and all of the Buddhist stuff. But then by being proud of our, our uh, facility with philosophical ideas, we're actually moving in the wrong direction from what the philosophy is trying to lead us to which is how to live a better life and how to live an unencumbered life, right? Suffering is caused by craving. Suffering is caused by like wanting more stuff. And that's just as true with philosophy and and Buddhist, you know, the stacks of Buddhist books that, that many of us have in our homes, you know? Like that becomes, that's the raft that we're dragging around with us. We need the raft to get across, but we can't be so attached to the raft that we're trying to drag it with us when it's already served its purpose. Okay, so we're almost at the end of this section. Um, this, this section is where um, Avalokiteshvara is going through all of these phenomena that, are, that were previously taken um, by Buddhists as uh, sacrosanct. So up until this point everything I mean up until this point in the development of Buddhist philosophy these ideas were being presented as here's how you think and practice as a Buddhist and the heart Sutra is now coming in and and applying this this philosophy this rhetoric of negation to all of these things and saying well there' that um, the it's one thing to say that there's the cessation of suffering but Prajnaparamita is saying that there's this transcendent wisdom aspect. And um, the, the Pali Canon doesn't really go into a lot of detail with this, but it does go into some detail. Um, and, uh, and so, this is like where the Heart Sutra's sort of radical rhetoric is um, going, you know, challenging all of these Buddhist ideas so this is the the section where in in english it says um, in emptiness there is no form no feeling no perception no impulse consciousness no eye no ear no nose no tongue body or mind no forms no sounds no smells no tastes touchables or objects of mind no sight organ element this is the sense consciousness the capacity for sight no sight organ element and so forth until we come to no mind consciousness element. There is no ignorance, no extinction of ignorance, and so forth until we come to there is no decay and death, no extinction of decay and death. That's the 12 links of dependent origination. There is no suffering, no um, cause of suffering, no cessation, and no path. That's the verse we just did, the Four Noble Truths. There is no cognition, no attainment, and no non-attainment. So that one short paragraph I'm reading uh, Kanse. Uh, I find his translation a little rough, but he, he's uh, he, you know the nice thing about this book is that it has the Sanskrit in it so you can refer to both the Sanskrit and he talks about why he translated it the way he did. But this one this one little segment right here is like a, a summary of and a summarily a negation of the whole corpus of Buddhist philosophy up until that point. So these few lines, are so packed with content and with meaning. And that's the section that we've been on. And there's one last line in that, which we'll do tonight. And then um, next week, we'll um, do the conclusion and the practice of Prajnaparamita, the section on the pra- practice of Prajnaparamita. So these last, this last line, the last line of this section is, na jnanam napraptir na praptihi. So um, jñāna, this is um, this this is the same word that's in prajñā jñāna, the the root jñā to know. So jñānam jñāna is um, knowledge, cognition, or understanding. Um, and in this section, it's specifically referring to. Everything that's been said up until this point. So when he's talking about jnana and saying that there is no, no, there is no knowing, there is no understanding, what he's saying, the, the knowing that he's referring to is Buddhist philosophy as a whole. So if you had been studying Buddhist philosophy under that, under that framework, you would be really focused on the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the 12 links of dependent origination the 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 18 si- sense the 6 sense spheres which is the 18 datus the the organs the objects and the conscious the consciousnesses those are the kinds of things that you would be really focused on studying and deeply understanding and meditating on those prop- processes and that is what would be summarily called cognition or understanding the jnana the jnana that you'd be focused on would be all of these things and here at the conclusion of this section the Heart Sutra is saying there's no, there's nothing to understand there's nothing to hold on to the, the, the whole philosophical system is itself provisional and uh, th- this is quite this pulling the rug out from under from under us Um, He says, naprapti, napraptihi. And prapti is attainment. So this is, uh, again, a specific thing. It refers to something specific. And if you've been studying Buddhism for a while, you might be familiar with these terms. But there's something specific that he's referring to when he talks about attainment. And these are the four stages of of becoming an arhat. Um, And these are called the stream enterer the once-returner, the non-returner, and the arhat. So in early Buddhism, in Theravada Buddhism, these are, the, these are the stages of realization that are leading you up to. These are the markers, the realizations, the attainments in meditation that you'd be seeking in order to move you towards nirvana. So a stream-enterer is um, the stream that it's referring to. That you're entering is the stream towards nirvana. Um, a, a stream enterer is someone who has had this fundamental transformation through meditation. They've developed this meditative awareness, this meditative stability, concentration. Like I've referred to before, we have the the stages of concentration, the stages of meditation. This chart. This is a Tibetan um, rendering of the same idea. But once you uh, once you realize a, a state of meditation. That there's a, a sort of absorption that happens that changes your consciousness. Um, in some some schools of Buddhism, call this the direct perception of emptiness, and this is when um, this is when you have a taste of this kind of emptiness, this taste of this non-dual awareness. It's like a taste of nirvana in the in the sort of Theravadin schools. It's a it's a transformative experience in that your identity is absorbed your your identity disappears you're absorbed in your meditation so completely so fully that the subject object relationship completely collapses and and you lose yourself in in this meditation and then and it lasts for a period of time and then you re-emerge and you and your identity is intact but you know without a doubt that enlightenment is possible that nirvana is possible because this, this state of meditation changes your consciousness in a fundamental kind of way. And this is called a stream enterer because you're now, you're, you know, again, we go back to this, this raft metaphor, but instead of crossing to the other, or this, uh, this stream metaphor, but instead of crossing the stream, now you're being swept along the stream. But that's a good thing in this metaphor because when you're a stream enterer, you're, you're, being, you're being whooshed along down the river towards enlightenment. And it, what it means is that you're now, your process is irrevocable. You are a stream enter as someone who is moving directly towards enlightenment. And some of the texts say that there's, you've got a, a maximum of seven lifetimes or 15 lifetimes or something like that. But that you're not going to, most importantly, you're not going to revert. You're not going to fall back down into a lower form of birth. Because that's one of the concerns with, with, all of, with this rebirth process is that if we're being driven by this karmic process that the 12 links is describing and our volitions and, and the name and form and all of that stuff is happening, it's not part of our conscious awareness or our conscious control, that when we, when we go to the old age and death and then we start the process over again, driven by ignorance, we could be reborn as any type of creature in the universe. There's no guarantees that we're going to be reborn as a human or that we're going to have the types of resources that we do as a human today because it's possible to be reborn as a human, but a human who doesn't have the time or the intelligence or the resources to practice Dharma. Or you could be reborn as a human in an an era in which there is no Dharma and people are not um, interested in spiritual practice and you're never exposed to spiritual teachings. These are the types of risk factor, you know, the risks of dying when you're not under control of your karma. So the one of the big perks, one of the big bonuses of being a stream enterer is that there's that you're not going to have any lower rebirths. So this is nice because in, even if we're saying like nirvana or anuttara samyak Sambodhi, these like very advanced states of spiritual awareness seem out of reach, Something that's maybe feels more accessible is that that there's there's a transformative experience that you can have in meditation, and then you can you'll have total confidence and trust that you are inexorably heading towards nirvana, that you're inexorably heading towards enlightenment, and that kind of you you can imagine that that might take the pressure off, right? You might there like that could um, alleviate some of the stressors of life if you if you had this absolute confidence that enlightenment was possible, and you. And you had this confidence in yourself that you were heading towards it without risk of uh, of a lower rebirth, of being reborn as a cockroach or a wild animal or something like that. So, a, st- a stream enterer is like it's like the first stage. I mean, it's not enlightenment, but it's like the first stage of enlightenment. It's like getting a taste of enlightenment, knowing for sure that it's possible. They say that one of, the, um, one of the mental afflictions that's eradicated for the stream enterer is the mental affliction of doubt. So they still have anger and um, craving and delusion and a, a variety of mental afflictions that we're all familiar with. But a stream enterer no longer experiences doubt in their spiritual life, in their spiritual practice. They have unshakable confidence that their spiritual practice is working and they know just what they need to do to finish it off. Um, some some say that in, in that state of meditation, when you have that transformative experience, you see the Buddha that you will eventually become and you, and you know without a doubt that that's where you're heading and you see what's happening between your current place and where you'll be to become a Buddha. And... So there's no, there's no doubt in your mind anymore, and um, and that's sounds pretty appealing. That sounds like um, a hopeful state. It's not full enlightenment, but it is. Um, it's like unshakable confidence that that's happening. So the the once returner and the non-returner so the stream mentorer means you have you s you're you're still in the you're still going to die and you're going to go through the rebirth process and that's gonna happen a number of times. This is the the more of the Theravadan school. There's different perspectives and different philosophies of Buddhism that you can see your current life is your last life and you're going to get enlightened in your life. That's more of like a Vajrayana type of perspective. But in the this is the more Theravada perspective. The stream enterer, the the once returner means you're on your second to last life. And this is a stage of attainment where where the the meditative developments, the meditative stability is such that it's very, very close to the end. Um, A non-returner, the the third of these four paths, a non-returner is someone who's in their last life. They're not going to be reborn after that. Um, this is one of the ways that Buddha talked about his own uh, his own enlightenment, you know his own nirvana. Um, you know it's pretty interesting that Buddha attained nirvana. Um, we you know the Mahayana schools would say that he attained unsurpassed enlightenment. but um, you know he continued to hang around in a bodily form for forty years and taught and then eventually died of food poisoning when he was eighty or something like that. Um, and throughout that entire time, he still experienced, you know, the, the, he still experienced things like physical pain and, um, you know, uh, problematic students. He had to deal with a lot of um, shenanigans with his students. Um, but he was in this imperturbable state. And, he, and one of the things that he said after his awakening was, this is my last life. I'm not going to be reborn. I finished it off. Once I die, or once this body dies, I'm not in samsara anymore. And once this body dies, I'm not re- going to be reborn as a, in a physical form. So that's the kind of thing that a non-returner is. They know that they're in their last life. And then the last of these, is, of these four is called the arhat. And in Theravada Buddhism, being an arhat is the goal. Um, arhat means foe destroyer, one who's destroyed the foe of samsara, destroyed the foe of death. Um, so um, an Arhat, in the Theravada scriptures, and the Theravada sutras, the suttas as they call them because they're written in Pali, so they call them suttas rather than sutras. But it's the same word, it's just a different dialect. Um, an Arhat is considered to have the to be on parity with a Buddha. So an Arhat is one who's attained full nirvana. Nirvana is full enlightenment in the Theravada school. Um, And an Arhat has attained the same nirvana as a Buddha. Um, The distinction that they make is that Buddha was the discoverer of the process. And so Buddha, because he was the the first... um, He has a a special title as as the Buddha. But then all many of his followers were Arhats or or because of his teaching became Arhats. And in the Theravada version they're on par with the Buddha, but they don't get the special title because they were coaxed into a Nirvana by a Buddha. By the Buddha. Um, But nevertheless, an Arhat in the Theravada school, the Arhat is finished. They've reached Nirvana, they're done. So that's even a non-returner is someone who's going to attain Arhatship within their lifetime. So if you're a, a stream-enterer, presumably each of those subsequent births, you're aware that you're a stream-enterer. When you're a once-returner, you're so close that you know that your next life is going to be your last one. When you're a non-returner, you know that you're in your last life and that you're going to attain Arhatship before you die. And an arhat is someone who's attained nirvana. So this is, what is re- these are the attainments that's being referred to here in the text. Um, but, ironically, striving for attainments is an obstacle to reaching attainments. And this is something that we're starting to get the feeling of from the, I hope that you're starting to get the feeling of this from the Prajnaparamita, the Heart Sutra. Which is striving for these goals is itself an obstacle to reaching these goals. Even thinking them thinking of them as goals is an obstacle to reaching them as goals. Um, so um, that's why this next the next part of this line is non-attainment. There's no attainment. the these these four, these four stages of an arhat are striving for these stages of an arhat create the obstacles that prevent you from attaining these stages. But similarly, there's also no non attainment. So it's not that the stages don't exist, right? This is again this sort of this weird liminal space that Prajnaparamita wants us to hang out in. It's saying like There's no attainment, because if you strive for the attainments, you're going to block yourself from actually having these realizations. But there's no non-attainment, meaning that there's no, that the realizations don't exist. But you have to kind of function in this way where you're neither striving for the attainments nor not working towards them at all. You can't just be lazy and not doing any spiritual practice at all and just hanging out on Etsy all day. You have to be doing something. But if you're trying to do something, you're creating obstacles to having the realizations that you need to have in order to move closer to the goal. Thinking of it as a goal is an obstacle to moving closer towards the goal. And this is this is like the Prajnaparamita is trying to get us. This is what all, what emptiness is all about. Emptiness is not nothingness. This is one of our, our sort of nihilistic materialistic or anti-materialistic philosophies of of the west is that well if they're talking about voidness or emptiness we imagine this like blankness where nothing is happening that's one of the problems with nirvana too people think nirvana nirvana literally means to blow out to extinguish um, and so some you know some western interpretation of nirvana is that nirvana means that there's nothing happening like you extinguish your consciousness but Buddhism would say it's, not, it's impossible to extinguish consciousness. Consciousness is pervasive. Um, but you're extinguishing something. Um, interestingly, also, nirvana, this is, a, the, again, the non-attainment, because nirvana is not an acquisition. Nirvana is a stopping of a mistake, and I think this is part of what we, gets us a little bit closer to what, what Prajnaparamita and emptiness is pointing to, is it's not an acquisition. It's not something that we work towards. It's not something that we acquire. Like these attainments, just using that word attainment is like, <coughs> if I accumulate enough something, then I'll become a stream-enterer. And if I accumulate some more, then I'll be the attainment of a once-returner, you know? Like if I get this, if I get, if I like hoard enough gold, then I'll be the thing that I'm trying to be. That but the attainments don't work that way. Just calling them attainments is a is a wrong way of thinking about them. So we would say they're we could say that they're non-attainments, but here the Heart Sutra is saying that they're not non-attainments either. But then so we come back to nirvana. Nirvana is a stopping of a mistake. It's not um it's not something that we do it's, something, it's not something that we start doing right. It's something that we are currently doing wrong, and then we stop doing it wrong, and then we can see clearly. And this is what Buddhist teachings, and especially Prajnaparamita, especially emptiness teachings and, and transcendent wisdom is trying to lead us to, that there's a mistake that we're making, this pervasive mistake that we're making, and we can interrupt that mistake <clears throat> and there's many ways of looking at what the mistake is we the like the 12 links of dependent origination is a is a great one of like micro like micro moments of like here's how your here's how ignorance is causing this whole cascade of all of these things that's doing all of this but then if we get attached to that model then we're like oh i have to interrupt between craving and clinging i have to be like constantly watching for when craving turns into clinging and like get a wedge in there to stop doing that. But Prajnaparamita says trying to do that is just another form of striving. It's just another form of getting attached to things being a certain way, getting attached to our categories. So here it's negating all of this stuff because it's trying to get us to look at this, at, at this liminal space where we can hang out, where we're aware of Buddhahood, where we're aware that these attainments, in air quotes, these attainments are worth striving for, striving in air quotes, but also thinking of them, of them as attainments and striving for to reach them is preventing us from making any real progress. So we have to hang out in this like, we have to kind of float in this space where we're concentrated but not concentrated on something, where we're working but we're not working towards something we're working to interrupt something but we don't want to get so attached to the thing that we're trying to interrupt that we get attached to the interrupting of the thing and that's where Prajnaparamita is that's what it's pointing to Um, so you know part of Prajnaparamita is that it's using discursive wisdom to get to transcendent wisdom so there are other forms of spiritual practice that are not the same type of wisdom-based practices, right? Like there's bhakti yoga, which is like just this open-hearted devotion. Um, there's karma yoga, which is um, orienting our our life towards acts of service, which can can trigger spiritual... These kinds of activities that can trigger spiritual awakenings. Um Prajna Paramita is for people who like to think about things, who like to wrestle with ideas. And so, part of the, the so part of the Prajna Paramita, part of the Heart Sutra, is that it assumes that you know a lot about Buddhist philosophy and that you're used to struggling with these ideas. And then it's trying to get you to penetrate even more deeply into this Buddhist philosophy, penetrate more deeply into these ideas but in a way that interrupts the entire process, interrupts the process of ideation. But it's for people who, who are into this kind of like scholastic type work, who are into this kind of like working with ideas. But we're working with ideas to try to get beyond ideation, get beyond cognitive processes. So we're using our discursive wisdom prajna to get to this transcendent wisdom prajna paramita we're we're crossing over which means we are building the raft and we are using the raft but the purpose of the raft is only to get to the other shore and the raft is not valuable other than that and so that's kind of the audience of the the heart sutra that's who it's speaking to Um, one of the Problems. One of the challenges with using the Heart Sutra in the in the modern day is that we're not immersed in a monastic environment. We're not living in a, a Buddhist university where, from age six years old, we spend our entire life studying philosophy and and reading and memorizing Buddhist literature and debating with other monastics and so on. <coughs> so. We're at a bit of a disadvantage with the Heart Sutra because it is, you know, it's coming from this place where it assumes that that's the environment that we're in. Um, So we kind of have to reconstruct the corpus of Buddhist philosophy that Heart Sutra is challenging philosophically, attacking philosophically. And so that's what we're trying to do in this class, at least get started in that process and hopefully make some, some good progress with how to use this text both as a philosophical text but also as a practice text both for developing our thinking around Buddhist ideas but also getting used to this idea that we're going to sink the raft we're not going to keep the raft once we've done what we need to do with it so the there's two sections left in the text and they are, rep- represent the conclusion of the text and also the practice of Prajnaparamita the the big kind of cash out at the end of this text is that Avalokiteshvara after going through this philosophical discourse um, he then says here's how to practice the perfection of wisdom here's what to do which is a bit ironic because we've been negating everything that we think we're supposed to be doing but he gives us a new type of practice and that's pretty exciting so that's what we'll be doing next week so it's customary to conclude a Buddhist practice a Buddhist teaching it's customary to dedicate the merit um, dedication is a, a, a powerful practice and it ties directly into the um, setting our motivation of bodhicitta at the beginning because we are in this flow of karma, this flow of causation, we, um, we can exert some influence over how that causation is working. And you know, there are the, there's the type of causation that we can see, that we can see and experience. But with Buddhist karma, there's also the karma of our mind and that the karma of our mind is actually more powerful than the karma of our actions and the karma of our speech. And we can see how powerful the karma of our actions are. We can see how our actions have results. We can see how our words have results. Buddhism says that it's what we do with our mind that's much more powerful. And dedicating the merit is one of the ways that we can use our mind to to bring re, bring the results that we want to see. And the way to accelerate our karma is to give it away. What we what we wish for others is more powerful than what we want for ourselves. And we can see that in a way that this is true that that what we want for ourselves is what's you know, what's driving the greed, the craving and delusion, which is underpinned by ignorance, which is the, the whole problem here. And we can interrupt that process by wanting good things for others. We can still want things, we can still want all the good things, we just want other people to have them. And so we, we, we can use that craving, we can use that, that urgency to accelerate the the process of helping others, the process of benefiting others. And so dedication is a way of using that where we imagine that the good karma that we've generated through studying and contemplation, through our meditation practice, through our, our, our spiritual efforts, that the, these intentions, that these efforts have real power, real potency. And, and they become even more potent, more powerful when we give the results away. So dedicating merit is imagining that the, the good karma that I'm generating with my efforts can be like duplicated and expanded. And, and those karmic seeds, instead of being planted in my heart, they get planted in everybody else's heart. I want them to have the results. I wish that my, my good efforts ripen on, on other people. I'm not going to be free from suffering until I look out on a world and see everyone else free from suffering. So they, I want them to get enlightened before me. That's the kind of motivation. That's the kind of thinking that we want to have. Even if I'm the last one, I'm still going to work for their benefit because that's how I'm going to create the type of paradise the type of world that's free from suffering that's free from samsara that i want to see and so that's the kind of motivation that we have with dedicating our merit visualizing imagining setting the intention that this karma ripens for for other people to be getting out of suffering for other people to have lasting happiness and peace and joy Thanks for tuning in to the Mojohito podcast. For show notes, video, and more information, visit mojohito.com.